The world's most advanced color correction tool for Mac just got more powerful. DaVinci Resolve 8 from Blackmagic Design. With XML import, export, multi-layer timelines, curve grading, noise reduction, stabilization, 3D alignment, OpenCL, and more. DaVinci Resolve 8 is available from $995. Current users can download the update for free. And try DaVinci Resolve Lite, a reduced featured version that's still packed with power. Visit www.blackmagic-design.com. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and in this episode, we have Ken Schretzman. And Ken is a Pixar editor. He's worked with Pixar on such films as Cars and Toy Story 3. Now, before I get into this interview with Ken, I have someone sitting with me right now. Hi, guys. And that would be Lauren. She will join us right after this interview to discuss, well, Edit Fest LA coming up, as well as a few other things. So in the meantime, please enjoy my interview with Ken. Could you tell me how you got started in the film industry? I started by editing anything I could, and I was—I used to volunteer at AFI in Los Angeles and edit student films. And I, I had a day job, and I, you know, and when I took a, a, a week-long vacation, I would edit a student film and fit nicely in my vacation time. <laughs> That's how much I wanted to do it. And then I also took uh, classes at UCLA Extension. I should say that I started by—you know—I went to school on the East Coast. And I moved to L.A. to figure out how to get into the film business. It took me a while, but I quickly learned that I liked editing. And one of the teachers at UCLA Extension took me aside and, and you know, asked about what I was interested in doing and introduced me to an editor named um, Buzz Brandt. And so I started as an apprentice editor, coding film and working in the cutting room, 35 millimeter, and that was a TV miniseries. So anyway, that was my first break, and then I just moved up in the cutting room over the years to assistant editing, and then finally editing. Not an easy answer, and not, yeah. not an overnight thing. Well, you know? uh, yeah, well, exactly. It's it's a years years of work and sweating and toiling. Exactly. It's it's just you know one little step at a time. Mm-hmm. Now I I heard a rumor, and this is just a rumor. Did you do marketing at? HBO at all, or I, I did work at HBO and in, in the marketing department, but I certainly wasn't running it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like the low end yeah. in the marketing department at HBO, and that's the job that I had. I had that job for two years, wondering how I was going to break into the film business. I worked in Century City. I was like on the something like the the 40th floor, and it was floor 41 that HBO had their production offices, and I would go up, up there and talk to people. But um, that was the job I had when um, I would use their educational stipend to pay for editing classes. Oh, perfect, <laughs> and, yeah. and if I had a vacation, if I had a week-long vacation at HBO, I would edit AFI films. So that kind of got me uh, rooted in L.A. So how did you make your transition into Pixar? You know, like a lot of things in the business, that was pure luck. I just happened to reconnect with an editor that I had worked with briefly once before, and I was filling in for an assistant. It was on, um, the t- there was a TV show called The New Fantasy Island with Malcolm McDowell, and I was filling in for like a week, and, and I was working with an editor named uh, Jim Stewart, and 
he was leaving like a few days later going to Pixar to edit. And I said, hey, if they need help, let me know because I want to edit now. I was kind of giving up assisting. And that's exactly what he did. Like, to me, it's still miraculous because he had never seen me cut. He never asked for a reel. It was just like he liked working with me. And he called me up and said, look, we're getting ready for a screening. We need a co-editor. And I'd, I'd like to work with someone I know. So he totally got me in. I had never, you know, never worked in animation before. And so it was like trial by fire. But I really took to it. I, you know, it was like really fun to learn the whole new process, you know, storyboards and just, it was just so wild and so different. That is how I got my start. <laughs> well, I was going to, I was going to ask, um, because animation is such a, a mystery to editors who work in the other genres. Could you, I guess, describe for myself in the audience, how an animation editor differs from a live action editor? Yeah, I mean, the end result is uh, obviously is the same. You want it to look like a, a, an edited feature film, but the process of getting there is so different. The simple way of putting it is on live action, you they shoot first and then you edit later. And in animation, you sort of edit first and then you shoot it later. The films take about four years on the average and the first two years is just editing storyboards. And so what you're basically doing is building this film out of storyboards and making a blueprint for what you're going to do in animation. So a lot of it is imagining what the movie's going to be. So, you, you know, that takes a, a special skill and it's kind of complex to juggle all these storyboards. And, you know, when you're building scenes, cutting dialogue is really different because the actors actually record their lines separately. That They don't get them all in one room and act out the scene. You know, you'll get Hanks recording all of his lines one day, and then a few weeks later you get Tim Allen recording his end of the, you know, the dialogue. And it's my job to put it together. And we get a, we get a lot of takes, like 20 takes of each line. And I have to put it together in such a way that it's believable and it sounds like they're in the same room. And I build a little movie out of it. With, you know, I, build, I cut in sound effects and music. And uh, you know, at some point, we look at the whole film in storyboard form. And what's great is you know, I'm there when, we're, when the story is evolving. We'll, we'll uh, go back to the drawing board and they'll rewrite scenes, rewrite dialogue. And I'm constantly cutting and recutting, working out the story before we even get into uh, animation. Okay, so like everything sort of slowly tr trickles in and gets put together. It, like, you know, you might get one dialogue one day, you might get one scene's animation another. Yeah, and uh, your cut's constantly changing, which is something hard to adjust to. You know, it's never locked. You know, the dialogue changes, the, the picture changes, the story changes, and then, then when you progress and you go into, you know, from storyboards to layout, then your cutting pattern changes, and then you have to deal with the real geography of the space. And then when you get into the next stage, which is animation, you know, the animators add their things, sometimes they'll adjust the length of shots. So you're always, like, managing the cut. It never, never settles down. Even beyond that, when they're rendering images, you always have to you manage all that material. So it becomes this really complex timeline you're dealing with, and yeah, it's 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 really different. Well, that brings up an interesting question. Like, uh, how do you? Because if I if I'm working on a live action piece, I have the footage to work with, so I know yeah. what I you know I have the actor's delivery, I have everything, so I know the pacing of the the visuals, so I can start to build yeah. my own pacing. 
with something that's constantly changing like that, how do you work over the pacing or, or structure the pacing and performance of the actors uh, yeah. to improve the story? It just has to feel right to you. I mean, you, it's, you're really truly bringing in your own internal pacing to the scene. You know, you can make it as tight or as loose as you want, and you're totally free about where to make cuts, too, visually. A lot of times in live action, you know, you're, you're really struggling with making things match. And when I'm cutting storyboards, I don't have to worry about that whatsoever. And, you know, you're free to, you know, create a cutting pattern any way you want. But it's totally fabricated. You know, the whole pacing and the feel of the scene, the shape of it, is all, is all my work. Because it, it just sounds like an overwhelming amount of work almost. It uh, is. So do you have, like, a lot of assistance with you helping yeah. keep everything organized? Yeah, there's like a, about, let's see, two, three... It's probably like four or five assistants organizing the work, and they have my hats off to them. It's a tremendously complicated job. When you know, whenever dialogue's recorded, they spend hours locating every piece of dialogue, every start, every false start. So when I open a bin and I'm cutting a line, I know exactly like how many takes I should listen to and where to go for it, and keep track of what takes I like. Um, but it's very complex for the, um, the assistants, and they do a, a great job of that. And there's a constant... In animation, editorial really is the hub of the production. Every department feeds us, and we send things back out. So they're, they're constantly bringing in material, either from story or from the animation department or from rendering, and bringing all these pieces in and in a way that's super organized, so nothing falls through the cracks. I don't know how they feel about it, but it's the most complex assisting job I've ever seen. Yeah, if there was an award for assisting. Yeah, this this would be it, because, you know, if they went back to live action, then it would be a piece of cake. Yeah. But it's exciting for them, because they also go to recording sessions and... You know, they do lots of things beyond things in the cutting room. To jump back to the the pacing question, when you get your animatics or your storyboards, are you starting to work on your pacing at that process, at that point, or is it... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the, um, you know, it's almost, uh, you know, a lot of the editing is thought through, actually, in the story department, because I'm getting a series of storyboards, you know, with different camera angles, and you know, I know what they're they're getting at, and then it's my job to decide how long each board should last. And the first thing I do is I cut dialogue with the storyboards, and I do one pass and see how that's playing. And, you know, once I shape that pretty well, then I'll add sound effects and then music to help shape it. So that was my interview with Ken. Lauren. Yes. What's your favorite Pixar film? Um... What a good question. Probably Finding Nemo. Really? I own that one. I don't know that I own any of the others. I literally love probably every single one for each for its own reason. Mm. Or um, Wally. Wally was pretty good. I it also like so The Incredible. I feel that's an underrated one. That's true. Yep. No, they're all like Monsters Inc., et cetera, et cetera. The, and the whole Toy Story franchise. I always like to choose one that, like, if someone asks me what my favorite of something is, I always try to um, choose something that's a little more under the radar. But Toy Story, although it's like the knockout success and like what really set them in their their place, it always should be mentioned as like Godfather. Yeah, well, you know what's funny? When I was researching this interview, I found out that uh, the original Toy Story, they wanted to have Barbie in it, mm-hmm. the very first one. 
And Mattel was like, absolutely not, because... I thought she wasn't the first one. No, she wasn't. They wanted to get... They didn't... Mattel did not want her to have a personality, because they didn't want the personality to be applied when girls were playing with her. Interesting. So, in lieu of Barbie, they had little Bo Peep. Oh, okay. And then... But then, Barbie and her... Um, yeah, her the car second one. and her Malibu dream house or whatever it I was called. I think they called them when they found out a second one was no coming. No kidding. Yeah. So uh, I promised a viewer on Twitter that I would say hi to her. A viewer? A listener. I promised a, a listener on Twitter. A little bird. A little bird that we would say hi to her. Uh-huh. And I'm going to butcher this Twitter handle. Cyan Fever. At Cyan Fever. Cyan Fever. Yes. Uh, hello from the cutting room. Hello. Uh, there you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, that's my first request. Shout out. Holla. Now, Lauren, we have the forward film review. Yes. This is a new forward film review. So. Uh, I think it's an easy one. Once again, the. I don't know that it is. Once again, the rules for forward film review. We will give you four words, typically in the form of a pun or a trick of wordplay. We'll represent a movie and by describing it in four words, and then you Facebook book us, tweet us, or email us with your answer, and the first one to do that and get it right gets a t-shirt. So this week's forward film review, Rail Splitter, a stakeholder. Rail Splitter, a stakeholder. And you can uh, Facebook us at uh, facebook.com slash artguillotine. You can tweet us at, at artguillotine. And you can email us at info at aotg.com. Now, we have an LA event coming up. Mm-hmm. Well, we have Edit Fest coming up. Mm-hmm. And Eric Brodeur. Brodeur. Yeah, so Eric, Eric is, we're... In the very early process of trying to set up a post chat live in Los Angeles. Eric's going to help us find a bar in LA to have our shindig at. Perfect. Some Uh, fine establishment. Yeah, you know what? It's funny because we've been spoiled. We live in the heart of our city. Mm -hmm. And it takes us five minutes to get anywhere. If that. If that. It's not that small of a city. I shouldn't say if that. That just makes us sound ridiculous. Like a one... Well, um, stoplight it, town or something. Yeah, we're we're next to what would be considered our Times Square. Times Square, a little and bit. Yeah, it's not really, but that's what a lot of people associate it with. Yeah. So we're constantly surrounded by bands playing, and and we have lots and lots of venue options when it comes to dining out or going to see a movie or going to theater we're just surrounded by options yeah so whenever we do something it you know it's pretty easy yeah and so when i started talking to eric i was like yeah yeah i'm over by universal you know where's where's good you know just let us know and we'll get there and he was like la's pretty sprawled <laughs> so you'll have an insider scoop on yeah, where you was, should actually be this time well it wasn't it wasn't that because i've been there several times and i yeah. know it's sprawled but it was i guess it's just the thought process yeah was like oh yeah we'll just top it over to a bar right and for any of those of you who do not know gord is an excellent traveler who enjoys a good deal 
some free Wi-Fi, <laughs> and it doesn't matter where it puts him. Um, but ideally, as close to where he needs to be going on a daily basis for work as possible, which generally isn't probably where you want to be staying. So always, always offer suggestions for us. If you want to put us, you know, like in Santa Monica, that's totally cool. <laughs> or if we're going to New York and you want to suggest Soho, go for it. Because yeah. Gord would rather say um, a couple blocks from Times Square just for convenience. Kind of a nightmare. Well, look what happened last time when we were in New York for Edit Fest. We ended up in a three-bedroom apartment, which was huge. It was. However, every time we wanted to go to a restaurant that had been recommended to us, we had to get on the subway. <laughs> yeah, all the good restaurants were not near us, but... Yes. You know, it was a five-minute walk from where I was going. But God, were there lights. So many <laughs> lights. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's and, all. And uh, join me next week for my part two of Ken's interview. Yep. And guess the forward film review for a t-shirt. Don't need to be walking around topless anymore. Make it no. happen. And if you don't win it, then just tweet Jamie Cobb because she probably has a couple spares because she can't <laughs> stop winning anything. She emailed me after the last episode and said she's not that lucky. It's just, which I, I question. No, that's a lie. Yeah. In the me is she just doesn't want to jinx it. Since since she sent that email, she's received an email that says you're the one millionth customer, you're a winner, <laughs> and she's actually the only person that's received an email like that that's won a million dollars yeah. probably. They're standing outside her door with a check and, and balloons. balloons. Yeah, that well, Jamie Cobb. I'd like to thank Ken for allowing me to interview him. I'd also like to thank the American Cinema Editors, Jenny McCormick and Lauren Burkell, my Again? producer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> two different people. Here's two uh, different people. Of course, people. of course. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening. Bye, guys.